Hey everyone, it's Arnold with Home Welcome. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the first episode of 2021. I felt it fitting to sit down with Jenny Dorsey, who is a bi-coastal chef, food writer, speaker, social entrepreneur, and founder of Studio Tao. And we dig into her backstory and touch on topics like the need to exercise creative muscle, hospitality being based off a of slave labor society, white and Asian fragility, and changing the narrative of food. So a lot of great topics in our conversation, I think, and uh, all things that I wanted to start talking about more and more this year. So um, without further ado, I want to share with you the conversation I had with Jenny Dorsey from Studio Tao. So excited to chat with you. And I think I spent New Year's Day yesterday sorting through all, all you have, there's so much, so many great articles that, that you've written and that are about you. I sat through your TED talk and oh, I was just, you. I was just sitting there. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just like, just disagreeing with everything you were saying. But before we get to um, all the amazing public programming that you're doing and the work that you're doing through your think tank, um, I kind of want to get to know you a little bit better you know, your, your story, right. And how you got involved in this. And I know before a lot of people know you as chef Jenny Dorsey on Instagram, but before you became, uh, you know, part of this community, what were you doing before that? And, and how did you find yourself, um, starting your studio? I was, I'm a career changer into food. I had started uh, my career in management consulting. I was specifically in fashion and luxury, uh, at Accenture when I graduated college. And that was a total you know, I think you have a lot of aspirations in what, of what you want to do in college based on what you see around you and what is portrayed as glamorous. And I thought that once you find, you know, once you capture that glamorous thing that you're told is really cool, you look at Anna Wintour like on the cat or watching the catwalk, right? And you're like, oh, like once I get into this big publication or whatever, you know, once I get close to that, I'm going to be happy. And so for myself, I very much, I grew up in Seattle. And when I grew up, um, I was like, oh, you know, once I move back to the big city, you know, it's going to be, everything's going to be just so great. And so I started my job in management consulting and worked really hard to get into the fashion luxury group because I started on the technology side, which I absolutely hated. Um, so I was already feeling great about myself. Like, look at me. I have this LinkedIn profile that is so, that's so sick. Um, and the weird thing is like, you, you can get what you want. Um, but then when you realize you're unhappy with it, what do you do? I think for a lot of people, it's so hard to reconcile the fact that you work so hard to get to where you are and you actually don't like it. That like the cognitive distance you create in your head, you simply just are refused to accept it. You just continue doing that job or the thing or whatever it is for a really long time, potentially forever, because you don't want to admit like, oh gosh, I had, you know, put in all this effort and now it's not going the way I want it. I totally understand that. I feel like I worked under that kind of dissonance for a really long time too. It's like, no, I like this. I like being surrounded by clothes all the time. I like talking about fashion and opining over who looks good and who isn't and making all these judgy little remarks about people. Like that's, that's why I am. I'm, the, I'm that person, you know? And I feel like I tried so hard to fit into the box that a lot of the more fashionable people around in my, um, in my team were like and care about the things that they cared about. And, and it always felt like, it always felt like an act, but I couldn't, I didn't know it was an act because 
I had always done it. So I'm just like, this is what I do, right? Um, until you, you break that pattern, you don't realize how unnatural it is. And I've talked about this before, but I had this one moment where um, a senior partner on our um, company's team had walked in one day and she was so such a fashionable woman. It really seemed like she had it all. And there was just something so disconcerting about realizing that this person who you technically you're looking up to, right? If I'm the analyst and she's the partner, technically, if I'm on a partner track, I'm looking to be her in 20 years. And I'm like, and all I felt was really sad looking at, like, it was really sad to watch a grown woman be so attached to all this stuff, useless stuff that we put on our bodies. I'm not discounting clothes. I'm just not discounting the beauty and the art of fashion, but it's like to have that kind of attachment to something, you're trying to fill your heart with something that cannot be filled with material possessions. And I didn't want to be that person in 25 years, you know, didn't matter because you have all this money and then you just go buy stuff. Like what's the point? And I was just really struck by that. I just didn't know how to like vocalize how I was feeling. I was just really depressed and Basically, I spent a lot of that time externalizing the, the angst that I was feeling by being really negative and judgy to everyone else. Like, oh, that part, you know, making really fast-phobic comments, really being having body uh, issues with myself and my eating patterns. And because like all that negativity, you don't know what to do with. And you all you do is just, uh, you know, you push it onto other people. And I that's how I feel about negative people who are negative in general. It's because you hate yourself at some level. Um, and I hated my life and I hated myself and I hated myself being in the life that I had and not changing, you know? Um, so I, at that point, I didn't know what to do and I was scared to make a really big change. So I decided to apply to business school. So I was assessed early decision to Columbia Business School and I essentially had like a nine month period before I actually had to start school. So I went to culinary school and was like, oh, this is my creative sabbatical. Like it was like the first thing I knew I wanted to do. I, um, I had taken a lot of recreational cooking classes. You know, I never saw it as a career, but I always loved food. My whole life was around food. It was just so ironic because during the height of that time, I, I didn't really think that would be a career. I literally went and put all this money on my credit card to go to school, which was a terrible decision because my credit card had very high APY, obviously, and I was paying that back for years, but that's a different story. I think at that point is that I finally had this like outlet to be creative, to be free, but also to meet other people who were simply just from a different mentality than I was. I was in the evening program because I was still working at the time. And so I was with people who were much older than me. A lot of them had had other careers. A lot of them had been in the military. Many of them had kids. I mean, they were just in a totally different mindset than me. And up until then, all the people I surrounded myself with were, were, were similar people, competitive people, people who wanted to get ahead, people who wanted, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be ambitious and want to get ahead, but it was like, we were looking to essentially be friends with a resume and not be friends with a person. And I, I mean, I can really relate to this because after business school, after I went to go do food, I lost, lost a lot of friends. And it was like, if I hadn't had that culinary school experience of realizing it's more important to try and pick people based on who they really are and their character, um, I think I would have been more shocked and disappointed that at, like later on. So I think I really began to see myself in a different light. I began to see my values in a different light and also the kind of people that I valued in a different light. Um, and that helped me, I think, eventually make that decision of once I started at business school and I, it was not a good fit and 
you know, I didn't agree with what we were learning. I didn't agree with how things were taught. I didn't agree with a lot of things. Um, but I ended up leaving after a semester to just go pursue the food world and see what would, uh, where, where I would end up. And to be fair, I mean, I, I married someone from business school, so like, no, like, I don't have hard feelings. I'm glad that I went. Uh, it was great, <laughs> great time. I was there. I met my husband, and he's very lovely. And, and there are friends from business school who I think are wonderful. But I do think that the business school framework, the way that success is structured, the way that they're, how it's sold to you, and honestly, the entire gatekeeping of business school as like many places requiring an MBA, even though I mean, I'm just going to put this out there. You don't learn anything in business school. You make connections in business school. But you aren't there to, like, relearn microeconomics. You can learn that in undergrad. You know, slash, like, it's arguable for some jobs if you need to know that at all, right? But, like, we were in our 30s, like, learning how to do Excel programming. Like, you can learn this in community college. Like, you don't need a fancy Columbia Business School degree to learn the stuff we were learning. Um, yes, we had some professors that had serious clout. Um, there was like organizational change behavior um, professors that were really cool. But again, those are things you can learn at much less expensive universities. The whole point of business school is to be a gatekeeping authority on who gets to make money and who doesn't. So how do you, just to connect the dots, right? So so you, you end up uh, not finishing business school. Do you go straight into the to, to pursuing culinary in, in terms of like working in kitchens or what, what came next after that? Yeah, so um, after I left business school, the first thing I did was I just went and did my externship because it's required for culinary school. So and my, during my externship, I was lucky enough to work under a really great chef called David Sandridge. Um, he's now in Mystic Harbor, uh, I believe. And at that time, I think it was very, it would have been easy otherwise to just work in kitchens forever because you're kind of taught this mentality of like, you just got to stick it out and be there for like the next decade and eventually maybe you get promoted, right? Um, but David had also come from a very, like, varied background. He had done all sorts of stuff himself before he became the executive chef at this restaurant. And he really encouraged me to go and try different things as well. He was like, you know, I could really see you doing food styling. I could really see you working on food media. I think you could really, like, you should really go explore. He was so encouraging and it was so amazing. Like, I, I look back on that and I'm, like, so appreciative of just you know, it's not like he was like every day, like, I think you should da da da. It was just every time I talked to him about X, Y, and Z and the other thing, he'd be like, why don't you try it? Or why don't, you know, he was just a very open-minded person. And it really helped me think beyond, you know, how, like, did I get my garbage prep work done today? Like not saying that that's not important, but it just made me see beyond that of like, I should be learning this. I should be learning how to debone a duck. But I should also be thinking about, like, are there other avenues in the food world that I can pursue? Because the food world is big, and it's not just restaurants. And I think that's also part of the problem is that we get really stuck on, like, what about restaurants? And right now, arguably, that should be at the forefront of what we're thinking and how to save restaurants. But there's so much to the food world that a lot of people who otherwise might be interested in food feel discouraged from going because they think it's only restaurants. And so was a part of your reasoning in behind starting Studio Tao, was that basically what that was where you thought like there's different avenues for you to express yourself and pursue this kind of journey without having to work in a kitchen for 10 plus years. And then maybe it's kind of similar to the story you told me before too, with the fashion industry thing where maybe you work 10 years at one restaurant, you become an executive chef, but maybe you're, it's not what it's cracked up to be. Right. And then, and then what? Well, I also think that a big problem in the food industry, and it's, I don't think it's just restaurants. I think it's, you know, 
because of capitalism in general, but you're kind of incentivized to be a cog for a really long time. You're literally incentivized to just turn off your brain and do the thing and do it faster and better. Um, but you just keep doing the same thing and maybe like slight variations on that thing for a very long time. And essentially that entire time you're getting drilled to not be creative. You're getting drilled to like, you're unlearning your creativity. You're not creativity like anything else is a muscle. If you don't exercise it, you will lose it. And I, that sounds a little, a little bit like dire, but like you will get, get you won't lose it completely. It's just like you will get less good at using it, you know? And I think there are a lot of people who have to come up through the really rigid kitchen hierarchy. By the time they make it to the top, they've lost a lot of that passion, that creativity, because they have been suffering under this like really oppressive system that doesn't need to be built the way it is right now. Um, and I find like a lot of problems with that, which we can discuss later. So part of doing Studio Town, I think there is a big push in food and food media, is that I don't think that hospitality service and giving people good food and good conversation has to happen specifically under this brick and mortar restaurant idea. I think that's a very, very specific idea of what it means to connect over food. And I think we should be expanding that definition and thinking about different ways that we can help gather people in um, challenging and you know, different ways without it having to be under the premise of a restaurant. Because as we know, restaurants are fundamentally very broken. They've always been built on an oppressive social system that we are now finally, I think, like grappling with. But hospitality is kind of based off a slave labor society. And now that we cannot exploit people the way we used to, thank God, like we haven't really actually come to terms with that. And we're still not okay with paying people what they're worth. What was the first event that you, you did under the Studio Tao moniker? Uh, wow. Okay. So when we first started pre-Studio Tao, we did events under um, another name called, I forgot it's Wednesday and then Wednesdays, which were just pop-ups like literally out of our apartment. That was back in 2014. And then the first event we did under Studio Tao was Asian in America, which was in August of 2018. And that was at the Museum of Food and Drink. Okay. So it's only been two and two and a half years since since you really been up and running with this project mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's definitely been a while i think we just it took time to honestly figure out who we wanted to be um and why we were why we wanted to be who we wanted to be and i i don't think that journey is totally over yet i don't have like a solid idea of who i want to i mean i don't think anyone does or i hope no one does because you're always changing and adapting especially with covid but yeah yeah. Well, since you brought it up, I, I, I'm very fascinated about Asian in America and what that event entails because it seems a mix of part poetry, food and drink, and then you have virtual reality mixed in there as well. So do you mind sharing us with us a little bit about what, what that entails, like the event and what it is? Yeah, for sure. So Asian in America is an exhibition and dinner series that talks about the Asian American identity through six courses of food, three courses of cocktails, virtual reality, spoken word, and poetry. So the idea is that as people come in, you know, they're seated in small groups. Uh, we ha- do have reasons for doing everything. If there's anything that we have learned from our years of doing small group communal dining, we've learned all the social psychology of like, how do you get people to interact? Um, and one of those things is what we found is if you want people to have it in a depth conversation, under six is like critical. Because once it gets past six people, it's easy to faction into two conversations and then people can't focus. And then it's like, they're kind of far from each other or whatever. So we have groups of uh, four to six, depending on how the tables are set up. And people come and sit. They have 
uh, pre-event, they have already been primed with all of these questions. Like they know what they're coming into. They know that this is not just like, oh, we're going to have a fun little dinner today. It's, oh, there's going to be six courses about six different topics. And here's a lot of questions that we want you to be discussing during that time. So for example, one of the courses is model minority. That talks about the model minority myth and what it is and how it's harmful to Asian Americans. One of the courses about white male saviorism. One of the courses about internalized racism, colorism, stereotypes within the Asian American community. Um, so we see people get really gung-ho where someone at our last dinner eventually literally like pulled out their phone and was like moderating the conversation with strangers. It was kind of amazing. She was like, no, we're off topic. Focus. What about this question? <laughs> so it is like people really get into it, which is awesome. You know, I think we're like, we've been able to make sure that, you know, the people who care come to our events. And we also usually partner with museums to do these events. So whether we do an actual exhibit at their gallery or just dinner um, in like one of their communal spaces, I think when people come to museums, you have a certain mindset. You don't go to museums like, you know, you're going there because you know you, you want to educate yourself, you have an open mind, you're there to absorb information. And so just being keyed into how you're priming people um, is really important so that when they come, they're already like, they're ready. They're, they're ready for whatever we're going to throw at them. Um, so how that, that actually works is they sit down and with every course, they either get a poetry placard that describes the dish that they're eating, but also kind of the, the bigger idea, or they get a VR headset um, and in the VR, they watch a brushstroke by brushstroke illustration of the food essentially being made. And then there's audio narration from me explaining what the symbolism is behind each of the ingredients. So, for example, for the model minority dish that I had mentioned, they're watching like this dish kind of unfold in real time in front of them. And the video is only maybe two to two and a half minutes long. There's three of them and there's three poems. So it's not like they're in VR for a very long time, but one of the important and interesting things I've noticed now working with VR for a while is that one of the cool things VR can do that I don't think anything else can do, so despite its shortcomings, I think this is VR's like biggest power, is that it can essentially create a personal space for you in the middle of a very crowded communal dining situation, right? Because I think we've all been to the dinner where you know, no matter how engaged you are, no matter how excited you are to go to the event, after two and a half hours of eating, you're like sitting with whoever, however many people and some extrovert just starts dominating the conversation. And we've all been there and we're just like, shut up, like stop talking, right? I'm so tired. Don't want to hear your opinions anymore. And I think that like, especially for me as an introvert, I can feel that introvert exhaustion and energy really acutely. And I would feel it at all my events. I don't know, and so I'm not trying to say that people like were having a bad time at my events, but I just know like towards the end, you know, we all see that kind of like energy, that spike at the beginning when people get their alcohol, and then there's this slow decline over the rest of the evening. We like that's generally how events go. And with VR, even though you are literally one foot away from the person next to you, you're able to create this little space for them where they're interacting with the art in their own way, at their own time, at their own pace, you know, and they have this restorative niche as um, author Susan Cain. She wrote this amazing transformative, transformative book called Quiet, which everyone should read. It's about introverts. Anyway, um, she calls it this like restorative niche and she's not referring to VR, but I'm just saying like, it's kind of essentially replicating that idea of how you create a little space for yourself during this really, not stressful, but during this social interaction. And what we've seen is with that, just interjecting two and a half minutes of that three times across 
three hours. So it, like the engagement level is like pretty solid and like just stays steady because people just have a little bit of space to themselves. And then, you know, they, they watch the video, they come out and they're like, okay, this is what I watch. I and mean, everyone watched the same thing, but it's like, this is how I feel about it. Right. They have a second to formulate their opinion before they hear that one like guy at their table, like impose their opinion onto them, which I think we've all had that happen too. So I think it just really helps balance out an introvert extrovert energy. Uh, virtual reality is, I mean, so new and, and it's fun to see that you're doing something with it. In terms of, I'm just curious from, from, from more of an operation standpoint, how does that work from a steps of service? Like what are the touch points there? So you, you have a six course tasting menu, you have also three course cocktail pairing to go with it. And then you have the written poetry, like how, how walk me through like what, how that looks like when you execute it. Uh, yeah, steps of service. It is quite challenging because also with VR, people are new to it, as you said. So then there's like, I don't get it. It's not working. It's da, 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 da. So like all the servers have to know how to troubleshoot all these random ideas. And people have the weird, like people manage to get on screens in VR that I've never even seen before. I'm just like, how did you end up on this? Like, how did you get here? <laughs> I have been using this for years and I've never seen this screen before. Like, what did you do? What button did you press? Um, so it's a lot of just like pre-education. And the reality is because we've been moving to different cities, we've done this in different cities, different conferences. A lot of times we are using freelance staff at the event. So it's not like people from our team. So it's a little bit of like, how do you make sure that there's a, an easy and seamless way for them to say, hey, I'm so sorry, I'm just not really sure. Let me get someone from the core team to help you troubleshoot. And it's not always quite that seamless, but a lot of it is just making sure that there's a lot of communication. I think at this point, because we've done so many of them in so many different settings, we've had, I'm not going to say every, but we've had 90, I hope 90% of like just the imaginable problems has have happened and we have dealt with them, not always beautifully, but we have dealt with them. So we have like, like if you encounter this problem, this is what you do. If you encounter this other problem, this is what you do, right? And just asking and making sure people um, read that in advance. But it is always a struggle because you never know what the, uh, the kitchen's going to look like. You don't know how far the kitchen is from the from the dining room there's one course that involves smoke so then there's like where do we smoke the thing let's not smoke it under the ventilator let's not set off the fire alarm we had a whole situation where we we're doing it in an office and then we had to literally bring the technician for the building come and turn off the smoke detector i mean we've seen it all so um yeah it's a, it's a lot of just i think it's just a lot of ops it's a lot of it's unlike any sort of service I've ever done because there's always like 500 uncontrolled variables. In terms of like, I don't want to cover each course because I don't want to give it away because I know right now you're actually, you're doing, you're doing an at-home experience. I don't want to give it all away. But there's two courses I want to talk about specifically that are very interesting to me. One you touched on already, the model minority course. Um, what is, and this is a personal question. What, when you say model minority myth, what do you what do you mean by that necessarily? I think everyone has like a different interpretation of the minority myth. But I think for me and uh, like a plug to the studio, we just did a whole toolkit about lots of things, but in it we cover like our stance on the modern minority myth. But I think it's a set of overlapping myths that a like Asian Americans have essentially become part of this post-racial society. We're no longer being discriminated against. Everything is jolly and fine for Asian Americans. And as a result, we also need less social support because the discrimination we're facing is either not important or not that bad. Um, another part of the model minority myth is 
that Asian Americans occupy this like niche space where you are the good immigrant. You know, you do, you, you are able to be good for the economy because you create jobs and are entrepreneurial. You're good at math. So you're able to, you know, essentially help other people do whatever they need to do. Both my parents are scientists and so many people in their labs were Asian American, whether East Asian, Southeast Asian or South Asian. And they were the people actually doing research, actually doing the experiments. But who are the people who have the main titles on those research papers? Who are the people getting Nobel Peace Prizes for their work in science? It's not my parents. It's white men, you know? And so you're essentially that like prize. You're like basically the sous chef forever. You are the perfect sous chef that does everything right, that runs service, that expedites, that does everything, that cleans the floor at night, you know? But you never make executive chef. That's like, I think in, in restaurant terms, that would be the model minority myth. And we see it a lot of times um, in restaurants when you look at women. It, there's an interesting piece about how women are often, they get make it to, like, whatever the sub-highest um, position is, whether that's the CDC or, you know, the executive sue or whatever it is for that particular restaurant, and they never make it to exec chef. Because why would they give, why would they give up that power when you are the perfect underling? And, yeah, that is... I think Asian Americans in general in America. I, I, that just hit me so hard when you're like, it's the equivalent of an Asian, Asian uh, sous chef. Cause that, that's, that was the case at every mission star restaurant I ever worked in. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like all Asian sous chefs, like it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And you know, most of the times, like you said, it's not on the menu, right? Who's on the menu? Uh, the executive chef. And how often, how often are they there? I don't know. Once a week for, for their team meeting. Right. Yeah, and they're like, oh, you know, when they're setting their James Beard Awards, they're like, I couldn't do this without my team. I'm not going to name any of them, but my team, you know, my <laughs> ambiguous, faceless team. <laughs> I don't know all their names, but here they are. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, a, sorry, a, a go good on. segue into into this because this this is you know fancy because it's French, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really love. I, I I really love all your titles. I think they're very witty. Um, but this course in particular about kind of. Um, internalizing another person's history because you forget your own. Um, I kind of want, I want to delve into this course a little bit more too, and maybe your inspiration for this. Yeah, so fancy because it's French is the last course, it's a dessert course, and the idea is that it looks very much like a classic mooncake, or and it has the flavors of a classic mooncake. So all the courses are because I'm Chinese American, I'm a first gen Chinese American. I talk about these topics through my own personal lens. And I know I don't speak for all Asian Americans. So the idea is if I can be vulnerable and share my story, I hope that other people are able to talk about their own experiences with the model minority myth or with internalized racism, all those things. So for this course, um, I think about when we eat mooncakes around mid-autumn or you can eat mooncakes whenever, oftentimes like you're buying those mooncakes at, I don't know, maybe they're a few dollars each and they take so much work. If anyone has ever tried to make a mooncake, doesn't matter which variety, it takes so much work. I mean, I have made them. They're not great. <laughs> you know, like there's just, it's a lot of effort and labor, but are we compensating for that labor? Do we even see that labor as valuable versus for this specific course, I use all these French techniques that I learned in like basic pastry 101 in culinary school. And somehow like, does that make this course somehow more elevated? Is it you're to sell if you're the server? I bet you can sell this course for $15 versus if, you know, you're selling a mooncake at a restaurant and be like, oh, well, you already have this preconceived notion as a customer of how much it should cost. 
I mean, I think there was an article a while back about like how much would you pay for four dumplings versus four ravioli, right? And so there's so much of that that I think a lot of consumers, even, you know, woke consumers, they don't realize how much they are socialized to already believe the worth and the value of people, but also with food. And it's never, nobody's ever saying like Chinese people are not worth as much as uh, French people, but those are all implied when we see the way food is presented in a social hierarchy. That's the real power of food. And as food historians will say, like, Food isn't just about what you eat. It's about who you are and who you want to be. The whole point of, for example, the fact that a lot of over time you see that uh, Western European uh, nobility stopped using spices, even though at the beginning of the spice trade, spices were seen as exotic. They were really expensive. But at some point they switched over because spices became so commonplace that the only way that the nobility could essentially assert their power and show that they were different is to be like, we actually hate spices. We're not going to spice our food at all. We're only going to rely on the taste of the ingredients. And that was a conscious change. And there's a, there's a book that I've been reading. It's called Language of Food, um, which is really fantastic. And it talks about, there's this like one passage, I can't want to paraphrase, but essentially it's like, how do you create taste? Well, the first step in creating a taste is to discount someone else's taste. There is no, you know, you can't be superior if someone else is not inferior, basically. And that sort of taste hierarchy is very much in existence in the U.S. Um, Christian Duray talks about it all the time in his book. Like, it's just, it's something that we are ingrained and we are taught, even though it's invisible and often we're not consciously, like, realizing it. And that affects how much we're willing to pay. It affects how we're willing to treat the servers that are not white, perhaps. The servers that might be not totally fluent in English, but they're amazing. But how many tips are they getting every night versus, you know, your cute white girl server? Like, it's there's there's a lot of those kind of hierarchies that play out beyond just food. I think with the six course tasting menu, uh, that that's as much as of a preview I want to give people because everything else is just so fascinating. I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's one idea I want to explore, which you've spoken about, and that's kind of stayed with me uh, overnight, which is you stating that food as goodwill and not necessarily talking about its equally divisive nature of food. I've kind of grown up romanticizing food too, because I, it just brings a lot of like happy memories for me. I never really thought about the social economic context of it. Um, now, now, not until very recently, to be honest with you, as I've, I've as I've first handedly worked at these restaurants, but you know, I do want to touch on it. Like what, what is it about food that makes it also divisive in, in your opinion? Food is not only like a required part of our, what we have to eat right to, in order to, live and survive but also food is a huge means of control if you look at the way that people tend to control other people across history um whether in a good or bad way usually in a bad way it's through food whether it's taking away their food whether it's um, removing them from accessing their food or destroying their food or whatever it is you know food is instrumental in how we essentially are able to harm one another um there's a lot there's a lot of literature about this but there's this one book that i want to talk about which is called ishmael by daniel quinn it's a fiction book but it's like so powerful and there's this one passage which I, again i'm going to paraphrase where he talks about how we unlike on the other species like when we want to hurt one another when we want to control other people's behavior we don't just destroy like each other we also destroy their food source and no other species in competition with one another does that so and you see 
play out across history. So for example, when we were forcibly quote, quote, resettling, AKA committing genocide against indigenous people, the first thing that we did was remove them from their ancestral land. So they can first of all no longer access the, you know, the climate, the soils, whatever that they're used to farming and raising and grazing on. But also something you see play out in the plains specifically is that there's these ads of like, kill every single buffalo you can find because that was a major source of sustenance for indigenous tribes in that area and it was like just kill them like there's no point just kill them and leave them there i guess i don't know what they were doing with all these dead buffalo but the point of all these government ads was literally for all the white settlers to just go and kill the sources of food not just food but also you know shelter nutrition they were doing a lot of things with buffalo and their skin and the hides and whatnot um, as a way to ensure that indigenous people would not have access to that. And also, they were essentially forcing indigenous people to have to rely on the rations of white settlers, which is how you now see there's a lot of unfortunate like health consequences of having to rely on essentially white flour and co processed coffee and all of those things that they were given instead of actually eating the foods that they were they have been, you know, cultivating for centuries. And so I think food is just such a powerful way of ensuring that people can be controlled. And if we constantly have this narrative of food being, you know, it's so, we're so great, we're gathering people. Yes, food is a beautiful way to connect with people. Food is a beautiful way to get to know other cultures. Food also, like, I guess you could say, like, most food is fusion, right? It's food is charting how history has literally evolved culture over time. The reason that we have tomatoes in Italy, right? The reason that we have potatoes in certain parts of the world, the reason that we even have chili peppers, you know, in China, they don't, they are not native, right? So like, that's a, it's a, an amazing way to see history unfold in front of your eyes and literally to be able to taste it. But I think we would be really remiss to not see the other side. Of food. What is it that we can do to not denounce the divisive nature of food, but how, how do we kind of learn some of this and, and, and learn how to talk about food in this way too, do you think? I think as a simple thing is just acknowledging that food does not always have to be this like very fun, like it's kind of that idea of, you know, no politics at the dinner table, right? Why? Like who, what are these arbitrary rules? Why can't we talk about real things at the dinner table? Are we supposed to only talk about stupid things at the dinner table? I'm not saying everything non-politics is stupid, but you, you understand what I'm saying. It's like, who made these rules? So I think simply acknowledging how arbitrary our views are around food and saying that, hey, the next time, you know, that we're going to make whatever dish it is, maybe you're trying out a new dish, understanding the real history behind that dish. And sometimes those histories are not that pleasant. For example, if you look at, I mean, there was that whole thing about like soup jamu with um, Haiti and the Haitian New Year. And that is a celebratory soup of Independence Day. But like, what were they becoming independent of? Like colonialism, right? So like, you can't just have the, yay, it's an Independence Day soup and then forget about the colonialism, right? You have to talk about both. And I think that's the, that's the first step is just simply acknowledging, you know, the history of these things. And one of the problems with oh, often white fragility and also Asian fragility, just dominant identity of fragility, is that you like you feel that anytime bad history, bad things of the past are brought up, it's like some, you know, some attack on you. It's not. It's just recognizing that like I'm Chinese American. I'm well aware that for example, there's a lot of things going on with the Uyghurs in China right now. Like, I can't, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to talk about that because I'm pro-China. You know, like, 
that's ridiculous. How do these things happen it, um, is because they get erased from our like natural discourse. So we need to reintegrate it into what we talk about every day. And I guess in, in terms of just making these steps right for a more equitable future, one of the things I kind of want to end on is I want to hear really more about your insights and your thoughts on I mean, today's the second day of 2021. So I think it's very fitting to talk about kind of what's ahead, I think, for this industry. I think there are so many things that were exposed this past year in terms of how fragile the restaurant hierarchy is a great example of this and how backwards it has been for decades and the tipping structure and things of that nature. I saw a statistic you put up on your website um, from the, I think it was the Brookings Institute, something about um, the millennial generation in the U.S. being the most diverse adult generation at 45%, I believe, and how Gen Z is even going to be more diverse than we currently are. I think about that a lot too, and especially with the work that I do. But what are some things that are on, the, on, on your mind for this year? And what are you thinking about? And what are you looking forward to? And how can we, um, as consumers, but also just you know, people, like play a part in kind of designing and demanding a better future for restaurants? Yeah, I think the big thing um, that I would like to see that I am pushing for that I hope that people will, you know, corral around is the fact that even though we are as a population getting more diverse, um, if we cannot change the who has the most power at the top of our funnel, then those people concentrate their power and don't share it and then change can't happen. The most well-intentioned white man who runs Congress is still a white man that runs Congress that has a whole slew of privileges and life experiences that are not going to be the same as, you know, a, a like a woman of color, right? It's just not literally, they cannot imagine it. Um, you, you, can, you just cannot replace that. And so if you just look at how our country is being run right now, Republicans in general are the minority. People who actually like want the many backwards policies that we have in the country are the minority and yet they have so much power and I don't want to see that replicated in food the way it has for so long. It doesn't matter how many new entry level guard manger, you know, black, brown, indigenous sous chefs you have. If the exact chef is that white male, like it's we, we can't just wait for white men to be like, actually I think I want to share a little bit. Like that's not we don't have a great track record of that across history, you know? So if we want change, we have to make sure that the people at the top do actually change. And I don't think we can settle for, you know, if we look at the Condé Nast bought appetite thing. We're like, great, we we're happy that we hired a black woman, but what about the people above her? Are they all black women too? That's what I want to see. And lastly, uh, you know, a studio towel and I want to, I want to talk about what it means and uh, you know, what it stands for and uh, kind of end on that note. Sure. So studio towel stands for all together at once spelled ATAO. And I was like really struggling with the name. I didn't really know how to categorize what we were doing. And I am such a nerd. I'm subscribed to the dictionary.com newsletter in case anybody even knew that dictionary.com had a newsletter. <laughs> um, but they have a word of the day. And I just happened to open my email that day and their word of the day was something called holus bolus, which it's it, the definition of holus bolus differs slightly on where you find it. But essentially it's the definition is all together at once. And I thought that was like really beautiful because it was, it was, you know, I, however you want to interpret it, all the feelings, all these different types of art forms, all these messages, whatever it is, all these ideas, you know, happening simultaneously. And that is, I think, how you create magic. Um, and 
Oh, but part of that is also having the right, like a diverse set of people who have diverse experiences. You know, like you can, there's so many different ways you can interpret that. And I just felt it really captured what I wanted for the studio, um, what I hoped it would grow into. So that's where the name comes from. Awesome. I, I really like it. And I think I, I love what it stands for as well. And I think, especially with this year, that's what we need, right? Is just togetherness. And I think that, um, you know, as long as we, we do this, we can get out in front of it together. So um, really appreciate you being on the podcast, sharing, you know, sharing with us what you do. And I, I'm just rooting for you. And I'm just really a big, big fan of all these ideas and um, topics that you talk about, you know, that are maybe uncomfortable to some, but I think this is the year to talk about them. So appreciate it. Thank you, Jenny, for being on the podcast. For all the audience and the listeners, Happy New Year again. Hope your week is off to a great start. And uh, we have a few more exciting episodes lined up for you. And also, just as a reminder, there's a lot of fun things that we're trying to do over on Instagram to make it a little bit more engaging. And we're doing a lot of giveaways too. So if you don't follow us already, it's at With Warm Welcome. Otherwise, I hope um, you are healthy, safe, and I'm wishing everybody a great start to a new year. 